So as I said, we're looking at Mark's Gospel uh, this evening. We're going to look at a few different places as well. This isn't going to be so much of an exposition of one uh, passage, but looking at what it uh, brings up about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and what it means for our everyday life. Did you know that there's a shape to history? I'll show you it. There we go. A shape to history. Uh, There's a pattern that history follows. There's a shape as well to our lives that goes very similar. What you see in every great story, in fact, that you read is this idea of good, bad, and then better than before. So that's what it looks like if you plot it on a graph. Starts okay, disaster, and then much, much better to end with. I mean, think about any films that you might have watched uh, recently. Here's a spoiler alert for any film, basically, that you're ever going to watch. Romantic films. They start at the beginning, don't they? They meet each other, they start to fall in love. Something goes wrong, they overcome it and they live happily ever after. That's basically every romantic film that you've ever seen. Action films. The hero is basically enjoying life, the baddie appears, they beat the baddie, and generally he gets the girl as well. That goes for every action film, pretty much, that you can watch. They're the odd films that don't follow this pattern, but we find them frustrating Because that's what we expect to happen, isn't it? As we watch uh, something like a film. So I remember watching No Country for Old Men a few years ago. And uh, in the end, it's an action film, but the baddie gets away and the cop retires beaten. And you're sort of left thinking, that that can't be the end. That's not right. We've got this inbuilt expectation that this is how things work. That this is the shape of our world. This is the shape of our story. It's also the plot of Mark's Gospel. Good, bad, and then better than before. So we see Jesus going and teaching, and then we see him die on the cross, and then we see him rise again. But of course, you expect it to be there, because I've said it's a plot for every, uh, every story, every film. But there's a reason why this plot is there in our hearts. God has put it there. But Mark, actually, being the simplest of the Gospels, actually simplifies this diagram even further. He puts it a bit like this. All the way through, he draws contrast between two things. The the old and the new. The now and the not yet. Suffering and glory. Death and resurrection. And you see this all the way uh, through Mark. And that's what we're going to see first. The first thing we're going to see is death and resurrection in Mark's gospel. Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 32 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. Just to show you what I mean. This is what it says. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen. Saying, see... We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptised you will be baptised. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you notice here that Jesus starts speaking about his death and resurrection? He starts speaking about what's going to happen, the way he's going to be flogged, he's going to be uh, suffering. What do the disciples want to talk about? They want to talk about who gets the best seats in heaven. Jesus is talking about his suffering, but they want to avoid that. They want to go straight for the glory. They want to go straight for the position. But Jesus is having none of it. No, even authority now, he tells them, is not for glory, but for the service of others. Jesus himself came not for earthly glory, but to suffer and serve. Now, Jesus will be glorified. He speaks about that here, doesn't he? But that comes later. So what he's trying to teach them is that there is no resurrection without death first, if you like. There's no glory without suffering first. So Mark's gospel is suffering now and glory later. And we see that within the passage that we had read uh, just before in Mark 8. Have a look again at Mark 8, uh, 31 to 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now the context for this is Jesus has just, sorry, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And now Jesus teaching them what must happen. He teaches them that the Son of Man must suffer. Now, you can be forgiven here for Peter getting a bit confused, because the Son of Man, although it's a way that Jesus talks about himself, it's also a figure in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. A glorious figure, one to whom dominion, glory and a kingdom would be given. One to whom all nations would bow their knee. Yet here Jesus says that the Son of Man will suffer and die. And Peter takes Jesus off to the side and rebukes him. He tells him off. You've got it wrong, Jesus. The Son of Man doesn't suffer. The Son of Man is the glorious figure, is the one who gets glory. But Jesus is telling them, no, I must go to the cross first. But Peter is saying, no, no. Peter wants to miss out the suffering, if you like. And go straight to the glory. He's doing the same as John and James. Glory now is what he's after. But Jesus says no suffering now and glory later. And of course if you think about it in Mark's gospel this is exactly what happens. Before Jesus returns to his father as redeemer of the world. He must suffer and die on the cross. 
Before Jesus can have that glorious resurrection, there must come death. Before glory must come suffering. And that's the model that Mark and that Jesus presents to us. And then Jesus goes on to apply this to us too. We follow the same pattern, suffering now and glory later. So let's have a a look at what Mark says about death and suffering in everyday life. He goes on in that passage to say that we are the ones then who must take up our cross and follow him. Have a look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to his disciples, sorry, and and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Actually, we're to follow after Jesus in taking up our cross. Because actually, when we put our trust in Jesus, we're united to Jesus by faith. Faith brings us together with Jesus. So that what was true for Jesus Christ is true for us. When he died, we died. When he was raised, we were raised. So if you think about it in that way, the Easter story that we're thinking about today becomes our story. This one-time event for Jesus becomes a day-to-day reality for us. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, his death was our death. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. I've put Romans 6 on the back of your notice sheets. Romans 6, verses 5 to 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying there is that our faith unites us to Christ so that when Christ died, we died. That means we no longer have a death to die, so to speak. Death has lost its sting. We were singing lots of hymns this morning that had that line in, didn't we? The price has been paid so that when a Christian dies, the Bible actually calls it sleep. It's so different from death because it's had its sting removed that it's described as sleep. And that means that we can enjoy eternity with God. We no longer have to pay for our own sins. We're united to Jesus in his death. And that means that we can know forgiveness now. We can lose our burden of guilt. We can have our sins forgiven. Why? Because as Jesus died, the punishment has already taken place. The body of sin has been done away with. When Jesus died, we died. And do you notice there, even in Romans, Paul, before he gets into his big application section of Romans later on, he applies it to our day-to-day life, doesn't he? Paul says Jesus' death means that we must consider ourselves dead to sin. He's saying we really did die with Christ And now we need ourselves to catch up with reality, if you like. Our life now, because of Jesus' death, is is catching up to what Jesus has done. No longer living for sin, but considering ourselves dead to sin, 
Because in Christ we actually are dead to sin. We are to die to self and live for Christ. Paul elsewhere in Galatians said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Our old life is over, it's crucified with Christ. And Jesus tells us much the same in that passage in Mark. Have a look with me again at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What he's saying now is that our life is now cruciform. It's it's cross-shaped. Jesus speaks of his death on the cross in verse 31, suffering and dying for the good of others. And then Jesus tells us to deny ourselves and take up our own cross. Jesus' death on the cross means that our lives now as believers are cross-shaped. His one-time sacrifice becomes a daily sacrifice for us. He denied himself and took up his cross once, and we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. We're to die to self every day and serve others instead. So the shape of our life now is service, just as Christ's uh, death was service. So what does a cruciform life look like? Well, it looks like a life of service to others. That is the other way that the cross intersects our life. So it, it saves us, it rescues us because of Jesus' death on the cross when we're united to it by faith. But it also changes the shape of our life. It changes us. As we sacrificially serve one another, we begin to be conformed to the likeness of the image of Christ. Serving as he served, as that great servant. We do as he did. We lay down our lives in service to others. But unlike the one-time sacrifice of the cross, this shows itself in a thousand different acts every day, putting others first. If I can get really nitty-gritty, it's washing the dishes after tea. It's taking an hour out to visit the sick and infirm. It's taking the lead in studying the Bible with your wife at home. It's giving up your ears for half an hour to listen to someone who just needs to talk. It's giving that person that lift. It's having that person over for lunch. It's giving money to a worthwhile cause. It's having the guts to speak to somebody about the gospel because you love them. The cross transforms the mundane and banal in our life into something wonderful. The cross shapes our daily life so that they become acts of worship, or at least they should be. Our lowly services become living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So the cross means that actually our daily life is affected. So that worship doesn't take place in just in a building, but in a lifetime lived, denying self, taking up our cross and following him. So what should we expect first and foremost from a life that's attached to Jesus' life by faith? Well, I think what we can expect is service, sacrifice and suffering. Those are three marks of the Christian's life now. Struggling with sin, serving others and facing suffering. It's sort of like the opposite of the health, wealth and prosperity gospel, isn't it, really? If you think what people uh, try and sell as the gospel. But it should be an encouragement to you. Because actually I find that's what our lives are like, isn't it, as Christians? It shouldn't surprise us that they're like this because this is the model of 
the Christian life. This was the model of Jesus' life, who suffered before glory. This is the model of history, which is going through <coughs> suffering now, creation subjected to futility until the end, when it will be glorious. This is the trajectory of history. This is the trajectory of our life. We lose our life now in suffering and service that we might gain it later. That's what he says in verse 35, isn't it? For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's not just for those who uh, have been martyred for the faith, but it's about those who lay down their life daily for the gospel. Glory is coming, but it's coming for those who suffer for the gospel now. But that is not the whole story. The simple model that Mark gives us is helpful, but the Bible also applies Jesus' resurrection to our life now. So it is true that we do face suffering and and service and those things now. And I think it would be a miss to to sort of miss it out. But what we find now is actually uh, a resurrection that's now and not yet. A resurrection that's now and not yet in our lives. The resurrection applies in some way now. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 to 20. Again, you'll find it on the back of your notice sheets if you've got one. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, (coughs) having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what the riches of his glorious inheritance are in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he works in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So just as there is a sense in which we died with Christ, there's also a sense in which we've already risen with Christ. Do you notice there that the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is now and at work in us? And what God is doing is the same thing in a way. He's raising us to life, raising us to life spiritually and giving us new life. We who are dead in our sins and transgressions are now raised to life, united with Christ in his resurrection. We were dead, but now in Christ we live. So Christ has brought us spiritually to life. Now, when I say spiritually, don't mishear me here, I don't mean metaphorically. He really has brought us to life spiritually. Just because something is spiritual doesn't mean it's not real. Christ really has raised us from dead, uh, from the dead, spiritually speaking. And he did it by his rising from the dead and our being united to him by faith. And that is going to make a massive difference to your day-to-day life, isn't it? Because it literally is life, isn't it? It's life from the dead. New life, a fresh start with God. And Jesus' resurrection made this possible. But why do I say that it's now and not yet? Well, if you think about it, the resurrection in the Bible really belongs to the end of time. So it belongs to that glory that we were looking forward to earlier. So when we think of the resurrection, sort of capital R, it's something that happens at the end. Remember our diagram, that was the big sort of bit at the the top. But with Jesus, the end has sort of sneaked into history. 
The new age began with Jesus. It's just that the old one hasn't ended yet. So we see some of the benefits of the new age while still having the suffering that belongs to the old. We live in what some people have called the overlap of the ages. So if you look at it this way with Mark's model of sort of old and new, really you've got this bit at the middle, which is now where we live, in between the two. The old hasn't yet gone, but the new has come in Christ. So we await the end of the overlap when Christ returns and ends the old once and for all, when not just our spirits, but our actual bodies will be resurrected as well. But in the meantime, it means that we live with a struggle. This is how it intersects with our day-to-day life. We're caught between two worlds, raised to new life, yet with our old life remaining, having a spirit that is willing, but flesh that is weak. Our union with Christ will eventually mean that the whole of us will be renewed and resurrected, but for now we live with attention, and now and a not-yetness to our life. So how will that impact our day-to-day life? Well, it will affect our work, won't it, as we face frustrations, wanting to live for Jesus at work, and yet finding it frustrating. It will affect our family life. Why? Because we'll want to do things right for our family, but we'll find that we're unable to. All these things happen because it affects us on the inside. Wherever we go, whether it be work or family or holiday, any of those things, actually the tension still exists within us. Knowing what we should do, even wanting to do those things, but not being able to carry them out like we would want to do. Bizarrely, in one sense, being spiritually resurrected makes us more uncomfortable in this world than less, if you think about it, even within our own skin. It's a bit like, uh, I was trying to think of an illustration to help with this. The only thing I could think of is that when you're asleep, there's all sorts of things can happen, can't there? I'm a bit of a light sleeper, but I know there's some deep sleepers here. And, uh, you know, you could have things crawl over your face, or if you were awake, that would be really awful, wouldn't it? But if you're asleep, it's sort of okay. Actually, if you wake up in that sort of situation, you're sort of worse off being awake, aren't you, than asleep, in some senses. Suddenly, you're not happy with your situation. And as we're resurrected, we become more aware of our sin, and we start to fight back. But actually, we'll find that we're uncomfortable in this world, because we have another home now. We have our citizenship in heaven, but we still live in this world. So the battle starts when we're resurrected, in this now and not yet period. But the encouragement of this, of Jesus' resurrection, is that one day this tension, this struggle will end. Jesus' resurrection assures us of that final resurrection, that final day when we'll be raised physically to glory. Suffering now, glory later. The whole of creation will be brought into that wonderful glory, freed from corruption, freed from frustration. So Easter Sunday assures us Not just of what is, but of what is to come. And hopefully that should sustain us in the suffering and hardship. Do you see that there in verse 35? For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake. And the Gospels will save it. There's a promise of future life for believers. When Jesus returns, we'll be forever with him and his father and the holy angels, as Jesus puts it. He will not be ashamed of us. Because we have not been ashamed of him. We have not been ashamed to suffer the scorn of the world as he did. We have followed the same pattern that he did. But this passage is a warning, isn't it? 
not to seek the world's glory now, try to gain the world and lose our soul. What will that do for us in the end? Well, our story won't be tick-shaped, will it? Our, our story will actually be further down. We face eternity in hell instead. But if we've been united to him by faith, two things will happen. We'll be rescued from death and hell, rising as he rose. And our lives will take on that crush shape. They'll become the shape of our life. And our life will take on the shape of history, if you like, the, the plot, the big uh, picture that's going on. Increasingly, we'll see Jesus' death and resurrection transform our daily life. That's the outcome of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in the end, we'll have an even happier ending. It'll be even better than before. We're right at the top of that tick. <coughs> Eternity with our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thought to sustain us in the suffering, in the service, in the hardships? That one day we'll be right at the top of that tick with the Lord Jesus and eternity with him. So let's pray now that God would sustain us uh, through that. Father God, thank you that the Lord Jesus uh, died on the cross. Father, thank you that he did that in service uh, to us, coming not to be served, but to serve. And Father, we pray that as our lives take on that shape, serving others, Father, help us and sustain us in the difficulties, in the suffering that we face. Father, we pray that you would keep us trusting in you and looking forward to that day, fixing our eyes on what's ahead, on the prize. Father, knowing that we'll be with you for eternity. Uh, and uh, Father, we pray that through the, the death that we face day by day, <clears throat> Father, keep us longing for that resurrection, for that hope of the future. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to finish by singing a song that speaks about us rising uh, with the Lord Jesus. This life I live is not my own, for my Redeemer paid the price.